Numbers chapter number 20. And what I want to deal with today is a very sobering thought. Very sobering. And I want you to bear with me. Uh, I'm headed somewhere. It's going to take me a minute to lay this foundation. But if the Holy Spirit can drive these, well, let me take that back. If you will allow the Holy Spirit to drive these truths down in your heart, it will change your life. It will help you. Uh, I went to the doctor. Well, I've been to the doctor several times in my life. And no matter if you have throat trouble, back trouble, foot trouble, ear trouble, nose trouble, how many's got brain trouble, they're going to tell you two things. Go on a diet and get rid of your stress. And then Mark says he just changed his doctors. That's, that's a good thing to do. By the way, that prescription that you can't read, you know what it says? It says to the druggist, I got my money now at your time. But no matter what's wrong with you, no matter your physical malady, you got to have to do two things. You're going to have to go on a diet and get rid of your stress. Now, going on a diet is difficult, especially if you like hot dogs and hamburgers and, and the finer things of life. You people that eat broccoli, you're so pale right now, you're about to drop over. But even though it's difficult, you can manage to go on a diet. Brother, Brother Tom says it's a choice. It's a lifestyle choice. So he don't drink coca Colas or eat hot dogs. He started smoking. It is a choice that you make in your life. But I promise you that getting rid of your stress, getting rid of that which unglues you will be harder to get rid of in your life than to go on a diet. I want to read a verse before I get to our text in Numbers 20 in just a moment. But I want to read a verse in Numbers chapter 12 and verse number 13. And I hope you'll allow me to go a little slower than I do normal because I, man, this is on my heart. I feel like it will help you today. Numbers chapter 12 and verse number 3 says this about Moses. Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3 says, Now the man Moses. You say, why is that word man there? God wants us to know he's a human being just like you and I. Now the man Moses was very meek. That word means pliable, teachable. It's the same word as we use as kind and humble. Now Moses, the man, the man Moses was very meek. And listen to what God says about him. Above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Would anybody agree with me today that that is an awesome compliment? That the God of heaven would write in the eternal word of God that Moses was very meek, kind, humble, submissive, teachable, pliable, somebody that God could work with. And the Bible not only said he was meek, but he was very meek. And if that's not enough to emphasize it, he said, above all the other people that's upon the face of the earth. I don't really know the population of the earth at that time, but I'd say it's more than one. More than millions. God said this man is meek. He's very meek. And he's more meek than all the others that are upon the face of the earth. Now, I want you to come to chapter number 20. If I did my math right, eight chapters later, we come to the 20th chapter of Numbers. And remember who we're dealing with now, the man Moses, the meekest man upon the face of the earth. And I want you to allow me to read slowly these verses. And the Holy Ghost give us our thought today. Numbers chapter 20 verse 1. Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin. If you have a writing implement, put a little circle around that word desert. If you keep notes, you can write down beside of that the path 
that he followed. It plainly tells us they was in a desert, not just a desert, but the desert of Zen. And that word Zen means rocky, dry, hard terrain desert. The place that he had, the path that he had followed. So they're in the desert of Zen in the first month, and the people abode in Kadesh. And watch what happens. And Miriam, now who is that? That's Moses' sister. Not just any sister, but the one that saved his life down by the Nile River in the bulrushes. And Miriam died there and was buried there. So if you keep a note, you can write down not only the path that he followed, but you can write down the pain that he felt. His sister has died and she's buried there. Verse number two, and there was no water. You can underscore that. And if you're writing down notes, you can put down the problem that he faced. And there was no water there for the congregation. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Very interesting phrase in verse 3. And the people chode. What in the world is that word chode? Well, I can give you the Hebrew definition. It's to sink your teeth into somebody. It's to cut them with your words. In Atlanta, Georgia, modern day, we'd say, he's all up in my face. Are you amazed at the people that do not respect private space? They'll run their face right in front of yours and say, pray for me, I've been taking garlic. You don't have to tell nobody that. And the people chode with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. So you got the path that he followed, the pain that he felt, the problem that he faced. Now look at this text, the people that he fought. He has to fight the congregation. And notice what they said in verse number four. And why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness? That we and our cattle should die there. And wherefore have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us unto this evil place? It is a place of, it is no place of seed or fig or vine or pomegranate. Neither is there any water to drink or their owning. They're in his face. After everything he's going through, these people are after Moses. Notice verse number six. He did the only thing he knew to do. Verse six. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and they fell upon their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. Well, I ought to stop and preach right there on where could I go but to the Lord. And man, I'm glad when you're overwhelmed, that's where you go. You go to the Lord. And they fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. Verse 7, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, now watch these verses closely. Let me read real close. Take the rod. That's all he said to do with it. Take the rod and gather and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, watch this now, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. He said, just take up the rod, but when you get to that rock, speak to this rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them out of water out of this out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. Verse 9. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded. He's doing pretty good right now. Verse number 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. They're doing pretty good right now. They're doing exactly what God said. But now all of a sudden, the man we read about, in chapter 12 and verse 3, whom God said he was not just meek, but very meek, the meekest man in all the earth, doesn't do so well. What does he do in verse number 10? And he said unto them, God didn't tell him to speak to those people, he told him to speak to the rock. 
but yet he speaks to them. And Moses said unto them, Hear now ye rebels. And you said, that don't sound very bad. When you look at the, what the Hebrew meaning of that ye rebels means, it means you bunch of heathens, you bunch of sinners, you bunch of unconverted people that don't even know who God is, you bunch of hellions. God didn't tell him to speak to them people. God told him to speak to the rock, but he spoke to the people and he called them names. He insulted them. He said, here now ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? That's what God told you to do, but he's blaming the people. Verse 11 It's hard to believe that this is the Moses of chapter 12 and verse 3. Not only meek, but very meek, meekest man upon the face of the earth. But now it gets worse in verse 11. And Moses lifted up his hand and with his rod smote the rock. But notice what the Bible said twice. God didn't tell him to speak to the people. God told him to speak to the rock. God didn't tell him to take that rod and smite that rock. God told him, take the rod in your hand and speak to the rock. But yet he spake to the people. He cursed them. He insulted them. His mouth got ahead of his heart. We ought to give an invitation right there. His temper got the best of him. And instead of speaking to the rock like God said, he smote it and smote it twice. Now God's faithful in spite of us. Notice what happened in verse 11. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beast also. God is faithful in spite of your and I inabilities to do so. Verse 12. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believe me not, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Verse 13. This is the water Meribah. Because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and he was sanctified in them. That water is called Meribi because that word means to argue, to fuss. It literally means strife. So they had to drink from the water of strife. Let me say it like this. Moses had to live with the consequences of his choice. Now, with that in mind, I want to preach today on this thought, breaking under the pressure. Breaking under the pressure. Having a meltdown in the midst of your faith. Now, when you come to this text, once again, you can write this title on it, The Honesty of God in the Bible. You say, now, Pastor, what do you mean by that, the honesty of God in the Bible? The Bible is the most honest book you will ever read in your life. Because when God writes the book, he tells it all. Now, most of us, if except Prince Harry, but if most of us, you'll get that after a while, were to write a book about our family, we were to write about the good times, the blessed times, the Wonderful times. But when God wrote the Bible, he had to be honest. And you say, well, why would God write about Abraham lying about his wife? Why would God write about Noah pulling a drunk? He just went through a building program. Why would God write about Elijah under the juniper tree? Why would God write about John the Baptist doubting Jesus in that little Roman prison cell? Why would he write about the Apostle Paul who wrote about love and forgiveness having such a grudge against John Mark? He would let him go on that third missionary journey. 
And why would God write about King David committing adultery with Bathsheba, murdering her husband, and forfeiting his blessing? And why? Why would God write in the Bible in chapter 12 and verse 3 about this mighty man by the name of Moses that God said not only he's meek, he's very meek, but he's the best I got. And then eight chapters later, why would God write about him losing his cool, breaking under the pressure, having a meltdown in the midst of his faith and pulling an awful, awful scene through his fit of rage and anger. Why would God do that? I want to tell you thing, everything that God does is based in love and holiness. Can I say that again? Everything that God does is based in love and holiness. Number one, God's holy. He has to be honest. He will not lie. You say, where do you see the love of God and God being honest? Now, here it is. God loves you and I so much. And he wants you and I to trust him so much. And he wants you and I to serve him so much that he's got to convince us. Not only can he use the mighty Moses standing by the Red Sea, and not only he can use the prophet Elijah standing there in the fire of Mount Carmel, and not only can he use the Daniel in the lion's den and the Joseph upon the throne and Paul the great preacher and Peter the great preacher on the day of Pentecost, God can not only use those with great characteristics and great abilities, but he can bless and love and use and has a plan for the rest of us. In spite of our faults and our failures and our weaknesses, God still loves us. In spite of our faults and our failures and our weaknesses, God still has a plan for us. In spite of our faults and our failures and our weaknesses, God can still use us. I don't want to get ahead of the study, but let me just whet your appetite with this. Moses was God's child before chapter 20. He is still God's child in the middle of chapter 20. And he's still the child of God on the other side of chapter 20. Well, listen to this, this is a sobering. David was a man after God's own heart before, during, and after his escapade with Bathsheba. You say, well, I don't understand how somebody can do something so stupid. Well, Job answers your question. When he said to his friends who knew all about him and seemingly nothing about God, I got some like that. He said, great men are not always Abraham wise enough to name the stars, but yet dumb enough to lie about his wife. I'm glad God writes about these men of God, separating waters, knocking down walls, bringing down buildings, slaying giants. Man, I'm glad God wrote about people like that. It makes me want to charge hell with a water gun. That there's something great to do for God. But boy, I'm so glad that God writes about their faults and their failures and their weaknesses. Because to be honest with you, most of us dwell more on our faults and failures than we do our strength. Now, if you're here and you're one of them creatures that's special and you're special to yourself more than anybody else, I enjoyed saying that so much, I'm going to say that again. As Brother Hamlin would say, that bears repeating. Unless you're one of these special people and you're real special and you're more special to you than you're special to anybody else. I enjoyed that so much, I think I'll say that again. Unless you're one of these special, special people and you're more special to yourself than you are to anybody else. For the rest of us, you're glad God wrote about the failures of those in the Word of God. 
You say, but I just don't understand how Moses can be so meek, very meek, and the meekest man of the earth, and in eight chapters has a fit of anger and forfeits his trip to the promised land. I'm going to tell you what happened to him. He break under pressure. He had a meltdown. He went as far as he could go. And the weakness of his flesh got a hold of him. And he sinned. And he made a mistake. You say, preacher, what do we ought to learn from this today? All of us are subject to a meltdown. All of us are subject to break under the pressure. All of us are subject to make a choice and that choice brings consequences that are irrevocable and we deal with them the rest of our life because in our flesh dwelleth no good thing. The thing in this text that just shocked my soul was not only in chapter 12 and verse 3, God said, He's meek, very meek, meekest man on the face of the earth. And then eight chapters later, he has a meltdown. I think the thing in the text that was most powerful to me was, in verse number six and verse number seven, he goes to the tabernacle. He talks to God. And not only did he talk to God, but evidently God talked back to him. Because it said, and the Lord said unto Moses, And he didn't more than have this boring conversation with God. The text says, the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. Now, brother, if you don't think the flesh is weak, if you don't think you and I, all of us, are on the verge of a breakdown and a meltdown, not only did he foul up eight chapters after God bragged on him, He fell the Lord and had a breakdown and a meltdown one verse after the glory of God appeared unto him. Can I just tell you something? It is very, very possible to backslide on your way home from church. Woo! You say, I don't believe that. Have you ever rode to church and back with a wife or a husband? Anybody ever rode to church and back with teenagers? If you ain't backslide before you get here, you will be before you get back. Oh, you say, Brother Joe, I don't understand it. I don't like it and I don't understand it, but it is what it is. Because not only does he have this breakdown and this meltdown, eight chapters after God brags about him, he has a total breakdown, one verse after he met with God. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. I want to tell you something today. You better get out of this message. No matter how much you read your Bible, how much you pray, how close to God you think you are, All of us are closer than a breakdown and a meltdown than we realize. And God is saying, if Moses can meet with me and if Moses can commune with me and the glory of God can get a hold of Moses and one verse later, he forgets it. He ignores it. He breaks under the pressure. If a man like Moses can do that, Don't you think this morning there is room for error in all of our lives? Brother Roger, I believe Paul said it the best when he said, put no confidence in the flesh. You say, well, Brother Joe, I'm a strong constitution. Well, can I remind you, Moses was not a weakling. Moses was pretty much, I'd say, a pretty good scrapper. Because you remember back in Exodus, he killed a Hebrew man with his own hands. He literally killed a man with his own hands. I don't believe Moses was a weakling at all. 
And I'm sure up to this point, this wasn't Moses' first trial. I I do know this, according to the book of Exodus, it wasn't the first time they'd run out of water. It wasn't the first time he had to smite a rock to get water out of it. This was not his first battle. This was not his first trial. This was not his first rodeo. But he had been through so much at one time that he had a breakdown. He broke down under the pressure. A man said to Billy Caleb one time, he said, Brother Billy, hallelujah, the devil came by today and whoo, I defeated him. Ain't that wonderful? Billy said, yeah, but he'll be back tomorrow. Brother Sammy Allen took some young preachers with him one time in a summer revival to Florida. They happened to put their motel room right in front of the swimming pool. So Brother Sammy kept them curtains shut and them books against them curtains and said, Boys, don't be looking out that window. Ain't nothing out there you need to be looking at. Come Friday night, Brother Sammy got up and said, Y'all pray for us. Said, The devil laid a real trap for us this week and everything over at that pool. But to God be the glory, friend, I made an A+. plus. I didn't look out the window. One of them young preachers who's a friend of mine raised his hand and said, y'all pray for me. I made a C minus. It really happened. I know the guy. He probably looked every day out the window two or three times. You say, preacher, I'm of a strong constitution and I have whooped the devil today. Wonderful. He'll be back. He'll be back. He'll be back. I want to give you three things if I have time about the breakdown, the meltdown that Moses had under pressure. Number one, I believe we can at least cover this. I want you to see the root of his anger. The root of his meltdown. The root of his problem. What's at the root of all of this? I mean, God says, man, you're the meekest man upon the face of the earth and you're doing this? I mean, you go to God in prayer and God talks to you and the glory of God appears to you and one verse later, man, you're cussing the people and you've lost your cool. There's got to be something at the root of that. Well, remember back in verses 1 through 3, I was reading these verses and I had you... Mark some things down. You remember the first thing I had had you to mark down? The path that he followed. It says he's in a wilderness. Hot, dry, rocky territory. The place where he'd been, the place he had been walking. The place he is leading his family. The place he is exercising the call of God upon his life is hard, is difficult, and it's building pressure in his life. Boy, I wish I could do like one of them television preachers and tell you today, there will be no problems in your life and there will be no storms in your life and there will be no confusion and setbacks and disappointment. Life's one big hallelujah party. But I would be lying. And so is that bird. Sometimes the path of life, it builds pressure. You're going to have your wilderness of a funeral home, a graveyard, a hospital, a courtroom. It may be through a myriad of things, financial difficulty, physical breakdowns, a marital breakdown, a spouse breakdown, an emotional meltdown. But I'm going to tell you something, life's hard. It's not an easy road. And there's rocks and there's hills and there's valleys and there's mud holes along the way. And brother, we're living in a wilderness and sometimes the way gets rough. Oh, I'm not tired of the way. No, no, no. I'm not weary of the way. But sometimes I'm weary and I'm tired in the way. He's in the wilderness. Not just a wilderness, but of zen, the hard, craggy, Cliffs and rocks. His feet are sore. His muscles are tired. He is physically worn from the stress. And I've never seen a world filled with any more 
craggy rocks and hills and storms and the valleys that exhaust you and I mentally, emotionally, and yes, even physically. The way's hard for him. But notice there's something else hidden in this text. When he got to this wilderness of Zen, it says, Miriam, she died there and was buried there. Moses is not only tired physically from this wilderness journey, but look at this pain that he's feeling. He has a death in his family. His sister, Miriam, has died. And she's not a distant sister. She is not somebody that he sees once a year at the family reunion. This is the little sister, amen, that stood over in the bulrushes, shooing the crocodiles away because her little brother is in that little basket and his mama has committed him to the river. She's doing more than that. She's committing him to God. Miriam is that sister that watched that little basket float down that river, shooting away the crocodiles. And when, and when, I don't know what happened there, but I like it. But, but when Moses started crying and Pharaoh's daughter heard the cry, she's peeking behind the bulrushes. Thank God sometimes having a nosy big sister pays off. Sometimes. Sometimes having a nosy sister pays off. And when she saw Pharaoh's daughter find that little baby in that ark of bulrushes, she speaks up and says, I know that child's mother. You've never been impregnated. You don't have an ability to make milk. But, 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 but I know somebody that can nurse that child for you. Who? His mama. Where does she live in Goshen? Who is she? She's a Hebrew slave. Well, take this child back to her and let his mama nurse him and I'll even pay her wages. Let me stop and say, aren't you glad sometime when the devil has to flip the bill? Brother, he owes his life to Miriam. She was a supporter. She was a lover. Now, she had a bad attitude sometime, and she'd get out of line sometime, and her Moses would butt heads at time. But he loved her. He was, she, was, he, she was his sister. She saved his life. God used her in his life in a wonderful way. And she dies in this wilderness, and she's buried there. I'll never forget how my mom, how my grandmother seemed to go downhill when her sister died. It just seems like when people your age go to dying, it has an effect in your mind. And whether you lose a father or mother or brother or sister, and God forbid, Brother Collins, a child. Well, the loss of a loved one, Sharon, whether it's a husband, whether it's a mom, whether it's a dad. Man, when you're standing by the cemetery and you're losing somebody that you love, not somebody that you meet every now and then, not somebody you sit in the Walmart, but somebody that you love, you've prayed with them, you've wept with them, you've served God with them, you've had some hard times with them. I'm telling you, brother, not only is he in the wilderness, but now his sister is dead. She's gone and he buries her in the seemingly God-forsaken wilderness. Now here's where it gets bad. He no more than gets through putting the dirt on her and the dirt is still under his fingernails. And here comes the children of Israel. Here they come. Here they come. And they don't come up to him and say, Moses, I'm sorry, man, about your sister. Moses, I know you're tore up about your sister. and Moses, I know it's been a little rough lately. Moses, pray for us. We got a problem too. You know, we don't have any water. Like Moses has got it and they ain't, ain't none of them got it. And you know, could you help us? 
I believe if they would approach Moses that way, you would have never seen the outburst that I read in my text. But you got to understand, he's already tired and weary from climbing hills and valleys. Feet are sore by the rocky crags of Zen. And now he's emotionally uh, tore out of the frame. His sister's dead and, and he's hurting on the inside. He's mentally, physically, emotionally distraught. And now all of a sudden, here they come. And they don't come asking him for prayer. They don't come asking him to pray for them. They don't come to tell him they love him. The Bible said they came against him. They chode with him. That means they cut him with their words and they blamed him on their problem and they blamed him on their plight. And he, they, even, he, they even accused him of saying, you brought us out here to die. Look what a mess you've caused us. I'm going to tell you something, brother. On top of the problem he faced by not having no water, on top of the path that he had fallen, been in the wilderness, on top of the pain that he felt burying his sister. Now he's got to fight these people. <laughs> I wish I could demonstrate to you what chode means in the original language. But picture, picture, being in the ocean, And you're surrounded by sharks. And all of a sudden they smell blood. You've seen the pictures. If you don't want your kids to go to the beach on spring break, make them watch, make them watch Jaws 1, 2, 3, and 4. They may go, but they won't get close. Let me tell you something. You've never known pain and disappointment and heartache and aggravation until you get sharked by a bunch of people who claim to be Christians. Uh, can I remind you that these are not Egyptians? These are not the Canaanites. These are not the Jebusites. These are the children of Israel called of God, anointed of God, pardoned by the blood on the door, rescued by God at the Red Sea. Hey, these were supposed to be the most holy, godly, God-fearing people on the face of the earth. And now he is literally being devoured by those people. Can I make a comment? I cannot get over how insensitive some people can be when somebody's going through the rough side of the mountain. Can I say this this morning? All of us need to have a guard over our mouth so we don't say something stupid. Somebody is having a breakdown. I don't think this will embarrass Mandy at all. I don't think it will. If it does, I'm sorry. I apologize later. But I don't think it will. When her first husband, Jim, was about to go to heaven, how was, how, how, Chloe was what, two or three? And Abby back there was seven. Probably one of the hardest things I ever did, pastoring, is when I took them two little girls and I set them up in the bed with their dad and they rubbed his cheeks and told him bye. Abby, I'll never forget the prayer you prayed. She said, Jesus, this is Abby. My daddy is coming to see you. You take good care of him. To me and mama and sister, see you on the other side. I had to get out of there, man. I told this preacher out of the frame. Because I do more than preach to you on Sunday. I love you with all of my heart. I feel like I'm that high priest that has that stone that represents the 12 tribes of Israel on his ephod. I feel like every one of you have took a pen and autographed my heart. 
you're in here. And by the way, if I had a preacher preaching to me, I sure would want to think I was in his heart and he loved me. And me and Brother Tom got ready to leave and, and I turned around and there stood Mandy. Boy, she was crying. Mandy, I hope I never forget what you said to me. You said, pray, Brother Joe, pray. I said, Mandy, I'm praying for Jim. And she said, no, Jim's gonna get his healing. In a little while, Jim's gonna be healed forever. He's fine. Pray for me. And I said, pray for you. She said, yeah, pray for me. She said, Brother Joe, I've been in church my whole life. Listen to this. I've been in church my whole life and I've seen people do and say some very foolish, crazy stuff when trouble comes. And she said, there's a lot of people watching my life and I don't want to fail God. Here's a woman getting ready to say goodbye to her husband. Here's a woman that's going to have the responsibility to raise two little girls in a world that's crazy. Oh, mine, she says, my biggest worry right now, my husband, yes, he's got incurable cancer and a few hours he's going to heaven in just a few hours he did go to heaven and he's healed today but her greatest fear her greatest burden the most heavy weight that was upon her was she didn't want to say and act and do something foolish and ungodly that would bring reproach to the Lord and she didn't want to fail God in the midst of her suffering wow Boy, when somebody ain't doing what you think they ought to do and you want to straighten them out, could you hold off just a second and put some tape over your mouth for 30 seconds and just stop and say, what would I do? What would I say if I was under the load that they're under? Well, I don't understand Moses being the meekest man of the earth and, and very meek. How come he pitched that fit? I'm trying to tell you. He's wore out from the path of life. He don't have any water. He's got a problem to solve, not just for him, but for two and a half million Jews that he's leading in the wilderness. And on top of that, he's just buried his sister Miriam that saved his life from the enemy and the bulrushes and the Nile River. And on top of that, the people that he left the ivory palace for, the people that he gave up his retirement for, the people that he gave up the throne and the fortunes of Egypt for to lead them through this wilderness. They are attacking him. They are chewing him. They're chiding with him. Brother, he can't take it anymore. And he melts down and he loses it. That's the root of it. My time's getting away, but let me just kind of carve off a spot and we'll finish this later. There's a whole lot of ways to have a meltdown and to express all of that pressure. But there were two things that got away with Moses. I believe he wished he could have got back his mouth and his hands. His mouth and his hands. I pointed out in the introduction, God didn't tell him to speak to them people. God didn't tell him to speak to the children of Israel. He said, you talk to that rock. And not only did he disobey God, Wesley, by speaking to them people, curse them. He was insensitive. He blamed them. He attacked them with his words. They've done him that way. So bless God, it's his turn. I'll give them a taste of their own medicine. 
They don't respect my problems. They don't understand my situation. They're not sympathetic toward me. They don't care if I'm under pressure. They don't care that my path is hard. They don't care the calling of God is difficult. They don't care I burned my sister. So you know what? They let me have it and I'm going to let them have it back. Moses, you are not responsible for how they talk. Moses, you're responsible for how you talk back. Wow. I used to say to my daddy, Daddy, if that person loved God, they wouldn't have done that. And my daddy would say, well, who said they loved God? Daddy, if they were Christians, they wouldn't have done that. Daddy said, who said they were Christians? I said, Daddy, if they were right with God, they wouldn't act like that. Who He said, Who said they were right with God? I said, they did. He said, I know, but God may know something they don't aware of yet. He said, son, they may be in that crowd in Matthew 7 that's going to brag how wonderful they are, and Jesus is going to say to them, sorry, I never knew you. Then daddy would look at me and say, are you saved? Are you right with God? Do you love the Lord? And it's a son. You can't control what they do, what they say, how they act. And then he'd get real personal. He'd say, but you will be held personally responsible for your response and your reaction to them. What's that got to do with us? Let's have a little confession. I know we're Baptists, but every once in a while we need to go to confession. How many times have you revealed your breakdown with your mouth? You want to just nod? And as soon as it leaves your lips, uh uh-oh, Uh Uh-oh, the birds just quit singing. I just grieve the Holy Spirit. But listen to your pastor. Listen to me. Listen to me close. Once those hurting, hurting, cutting, insulting words leave your lips, you can't get them back. And listen to me, snowflake generation. I'm sorry. Don't fix everything. That mouth. And then his hands get in motion. And he starts throwing things. Hitting things. Slamming doors. I got nowhere to hide blowing horns. Whoever picked out this pulpit? Tom? I mean, now he's showing it with his head. Okay, you bunch of rebels. Must He's not only disobeying God and speaking to them, he's insulting them. I ain't got nothing I want to break. So he gets that rod and says, you rebels. Smites that rock twice. Not only did he disobey God by smiting it, he smote it twice. Not only was he pitching a fit, I believe he was pitching a southern fit. I would love to interview our Yankee friends sometime and ask them, how do y'all pitch a hissy fit? Same way? Oh, so she throws things and slams. Oh, my. You say, Brother Joe, that ain't becoming of a man of God. That's not becoming of Moses. Moses ought to know better than that. 
Moses ought to know better than that. You better believe Moses ought to know better than that. He's on his face before God. God tells him what to do. God shows him what to do. The glory of the Lord appears, but he is so distraught. He is under such pressure. He's disobeying God. He's disregarding God. He's forgetting what God has said. And right now, the gloom is greater than his glory. And he melts down and he breaks under the pressure. You say, Brother Joe, what could be so terrible about that? Well, if you were in our Sunday school class about two years ago, when I took the senior adults, actually three years ago before covid We walked through the Old Testament and I did a 15-week series on the Old Testament pictures of Christ. Remember, we went into the wilderness and we saw this rock. And Brother Jerry, Paul, under this person, the Holy Spirit tells us about that rock. He said that rock followed them. Hallelujah. And they drank of that rock. Woo! And that rock was Christ, the rock of ages. You remember back in the book of Exodus, the first time there was no water, and the first time they got thirsty, God said, Moses, take your rod, take your rod, and smite that rock one time. And when you smite that rock one time, from that rock will bellow rivers, streams of life-giving water. And the next time you need water, you don't have to smite the rock. All you got to do is speak to the rock. And if you speak to the rock that was smitten, the speaking will do what the smiting did. The same, my God, somebody help me right there. And the same life-giving water. I want to tell you 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary, the cornerstone of the church, the rock of ages clear for me was smitten on an old rugged cross at one time. He bled once. He died once. He ascended into hell once. But once was enough because now 2,000 years later, when old sinners in Georgia need to be saved, he doesn't have to go to the cross again and suffer again. Once was enough. Now it says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How did that rock get from Exodus 15 to Numbers 20 and their mouths apart? It's more than some rock. It's the rock of ages. When Moses, wait a minute. God said, Moses, you didn't sanctify me in front of them people. In other words, you distorted my picture. You distracted and distorted my message of love and mercy and grace. Moses, you have acted very unbecoming as somebody that's supposed to represent me to these people. And Moses, we can't have that. You say, but preacher, all these other people that go to church and claim to be a Christian, look how they live, look how they act, look what they say. You are not responsible for them. But every one of us that know the Lord and our sins have been forgiven, we have a responsibility to show this world the loving care of God Almighty. And when we act like that, we distort the picture and distract people from the message that God wants them to have. We got to close. We got to close. We got to close. Several years ago, I was in a big preacher's meeting, a big one. Uh, it must have been a sick meeting because there's a lot of doctors there. Dr. Him and Dr. Her and Dr. One fella stood, his wife stood up and she was a doctor too. And no more education than some of them had. They ain't even a practical nurse. But anyway, here we go. It always amazes me what a guy with a doctor's degree behind his name gets up and preaches something that ain't even remotely in the Bible, but that's another subject. So I mean a lot of the dignitaries, there's a lot of leaders in our movement and our denomination were there. And I'm sitting on the front, and over here's a man who runs about 1,500, over here's a man who runs about 2,000, right here's so-and-so, here's so-and-so, wrote this book, wrote that book. I mean, yes. And he calls on a young man in his mid-twenties. What an opportunity. 
That young man in his mid-twenties is about to preach to the leaders of the independent Baptist movement. What an opportunity. In other words, he's about to go to bat in the playoffs that leads to the World Series. The first thing he says, Hey, look up here at me. And I could see them North Carolina rednecks burying up right there. I know what you're looking at. You're looking up here thinking, can that young buck preach? I'm looking at you wondering, bless God, if you can take it. Brother, immediately, every fist in the building went up. Barry, I don't know what northerners do when they hear something like that. Here's what rednecks from North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, and Alabama do. They wouldn't have went to the altar. They, they, them people couldn't have been drugged to that altar with nine Brammer bulls or 14 John Deere tractors. That's not the message. Brother Wesley, you may not remember this, but about 25 Years ago, on a Wednesday night in our old building at Betty Talmadge, I'd been in a Monday-Tuesday meeting and the glory of God was so thick. I mean, man, it was awesome. I got up to teach the lesson that Wednesday night and everybody sitting there picking their fingernails. They weren't playing on their phones because that was before the phones, but chewing their gum, taking a nap, whatever they were doing. And it hit me. And I got mad. I had a meltdown. I took my little fist. If you don't believe it, go to that fellowship hall called the Oasis and look at that cross pulpit and look at all them indentions. I preached behind that thing for 15 years, Sunday morning, Sunday night. I've been smiting that rock. And I hit that pulpit. Brother, God used you that night in a way you'll never know. I hit the pot and said, Hey, wake up, bless God. I've been in an old-fashioned Holy Ghost revival. Where y'all been? Just like that. I know some of you newer members can't believe. Some of you just lost confidence in me, and I repented over it 10,000 times. Well, one lady looked at her husband and went, that ain't my preacher. It was his that night. I've been in an old-fashioned Holy Ghost revival. Where you been? In Wesley Pinion style. He raised his hand and said, in a ditch with two cussing sinners all week long. Dude, that ain't what I wanted you to say. I wanted you to run up there and give me $100 and say, preacher, it's going to be better tomorrow. But oh no, he's got to be honest. All day where I've been, I've been in a ditch with two cussing sinners all And the Holy Ghost said, he's right. You're wrong. Now, that's the only time you've been right and I've been wrong. (laughs) What happened, preacher? I had a meltdown. And every one of us in this room, when we're weak, when we're weary, have you ever been outside in the summer and took your hose pipe? Now, this is a southern term, and kicked it. How many ever kinked the hose pipe? Kink it. How do I put that in modern day terms? You kink it. I'm having a hard time preaching to the next generation. And you twist it. And all of a sudden, you forget it. And the water keeps running and the water keeps running and the sun gets hotter. And all of a sudden your daddy comes and said, all right, I got a busted hose pipe out there who kinked the line. Boy, the devil will kink you. He'll twist your mind, twist your soul, twist your attitude and put you under that pressure. And if Moses had to stay close to God and then have a meltdown, How much should you and I walk careful?
walk circumspectedly and trust God for every moment. I'm sorry, I've run out of time. I've been doing good last little bit, you know, but when God gave me this, I just felt the Holy Ghost say, oh, my people need this, my people need this. Because the last couple of years, it's been bad. On a lot of us, the pressure, the devil will kink your hope. But somehow there's victory. You know, I told you a while ago I was going to preach on that, something else tonight, but I felt like, to be honest with God, I need to come back tonight, right here where I left off. Because I gave you the root of it. Somewhat of the revelation of it, how he expressed it. But to be honest with this text, I've got to give you the results. Let me just say to you, and we're done. Consequences comes with choices. Choices come and go, but consequences are irrevocable. And we need to deal with that. You said, what's the message today? Oh God, I need you. Set a guard before my heart and my mouth and my will and help me. Let's stand together, Lord. We love you today.